ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, my name is Penny Wong and I've just had the great honour of being sworn in as Australia's Foreign Minister. I look forward to visiting the Pacific soon. I don't know if you've heard this before. This message went out the day after the election last year. The Foreign Minister, brand new in the job, is wasting no time. She's very deliberately underlining that the Albanese government wants to reset the relationship with our Pacific neighbours. We want to help build a stronger Pacific family. That is why we will do more. But we will also do it better. We will listen because we care what the Pacific has to say. Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. And you might be wondering what we're doing with this. I mean, it's foreign policy. But of course, it's economics too. And it's on an economic issue that the government's being accused of not listening. Essentially, Papua New Guinea has irked the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and Australia is not siding with our nearest neighbour. Stephen Howes is director of the Development Policy Centre at the ANU. Stephen, what has PNG done to fall out with the IMF? Well, I think we need to go back to 2021. In that year, the, the PNG government set up an independent advisory group uh, to advise it on the central bank and the legislation uh, relating to it. And, and just to put my cards on the table, I was part of that group. And uh, in late 21, uh, we released a report. And one of our main recommendations was that the mandate of PNG Central Bank, the Bank of Papua New Guinea, be changed. Uh, under the existing legislation, when it came to monetary policy, uh, the bank was ordered only to focus on limiting inflation. And what we recommended was that mandate be broadened you know, to what's called a dual mandate uh, so that it keep the focus on inflation, but add to that a focus on economic growth and employment. The government accepted our recommendation and uh, at the end of 21, they brought amendments to parliament to amend the Central Banking Act uh, to change the objectives of uh, BPNG, as it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the end, the the opposition uh, supported those amendments. They were passed uh, unanimously. But the IMF uh, doesn't agree with that, thinks it was a mistake, and that is what they're uh, against. So what, what are the IMF's concerns, Stephen? I think the IMF looks at it very much through a sort of global lens. I mean, central banks around the world, uh, in fact, have a variety of objectives. Some have a single focus on inflation. If you think about the European Central Bank, uh, others have a dual mandate. If you think about our own uh, Reserve Bank of Australia. But the IMF, looking at the global evidence, uh, doing its analysis, uh, has come to this view that the one thing that banks can influence the most is inflation. That's what they should focus on. Uh, so for them, it's become like a, like a global best practice. And, and so therefore, something every country should do, therefore something they recommend for PNG. Now, countries and, and the IMF disagree on things. It's not super uncommon, is it? But I think your concern is that this could have a real impact on Papua New Guinea. Uh, that's right. There are really two aspects to my concern. Uh, one is that this is a case where the IMF can and is exercising real influence because PNG's gone to the IMF for a loan. And the IMF's made it a condition of the loan that it uh, basically reverse these amendments, or at least say that limiting inflation is, is the primary objective. 
Uh, so yeah, IMF can have real influence. And, you know, I just disagree with them. I mean, I think uh, they're wrong uh, in this case and they're, they're pushing uh, PNG uh, in, in the wrong direction. So why do you think that? Yeah, so our argument is not a global one. You know, we don't take a position on this global debate about what in general or what the typical central bank should do. Our argument is very much uh, specifically related to the PNG context. And it's a very different context to the one in which, uh, say, the RBA operates. That in particular relates to the exchange rate. So in Australia, uh, the exchange rate's floating. It's not an instrument at the disposal of the RBA. And we often talk about the RBA only having one instrument, which is the cash rate. Yeah. Uh, but in PNG, the central bank really has two instruments. You know, it has a, a type of cash rate, but it also has the exchange rate. The exchange rate and the exchange rate regime is, is really determined by the central bank. And it's in that context where you're operating the exchange rate that we think it's really important that you take into account not only inflation, uh, but also growth. And that's not just a theoretical argument. It's really an argument based on the experience in PNG over the last uh, 10 years. So somewhat similar to uh, Australia, PNG went through a, a, an economic boom uh, that ended around 2013. And since then, it's been more uh, like facing a bust. And as, as often happens, you have depreciationary pressures. But what's happened is that the central bank has resisted those pressures. There has been some devaluation, but it's widely recognized that the keener is overvalued. And how's that come about? Well, if you're told only to focus on inflation, you're going to be averse to devaluations in general. Because if there's one thing we know about a devaluation is that it's going to lead to inflation, right? Because it's going to make imports mm -hmm. more expensive. So, you know, one problem we were trying to address is the overvalued currency. And then there's a second related but distinct problem in relation to foreign exchange, which is this practice of rationing. Now, again, it's something, you know, we wouldn't really be familiar with here in Australia. In Australia, you can basically buy as much foreign exchange as you want, provided you've got the Australian dollars. But in PNG, uh, over the last 10 years, a practice of rationing has developed where, you know, you might put in an order for, say, 10 million US dollars to pay for your imports, uh, but you might only get five. And, and even that you might have to wait a month for. And that's because uh, BPNG has been rationing the amount of foreign exchange that it releases uh, into the market. Now, why has it done that? Well, you know, rationing or queuing is really one way to manage excess demand. The other way, the more conventional way, is to increase the price, right? That will, that will reduce mm -hmm. demand. But increasing the price for foreign currency is just another way of saying you're devaluing the local currency. And then again, if you're told only to worry about inflation, uh, you're going to be averse to devaluation, and that's going to lead you down this rationing route, which is what we've seen happen in, in PNG. And, you know, rationing is very bad for economic growth. Uh, and in fact, we've had repeated surveys of businesses in PNG over the last 10 years, and they have listed, on average, their number one concern uh, has been and remains foreign exchange shortages. So what is your concern about what would happen if if these conditions are met? My concern is longer term, you know, when we have maybe the PNG is a boom bust economy, there's going to be another boom. When we come to the next bust, if there's not this legislative guidance for the central bank to take into account the growth consequences, as well as the inflationary consequences of its exchange rate decisions, then it will be all too easy for it to repeat what it did uh, 10 years ago, which is to allow the exchange rate to become overvalued and to allow this practice 
of rationing uh, to re-emerge. And uh, we really need to learn the lessons of, of the past. You know, we can't just rely on the IMF coming in and telling a country what to do. A country needs to make its own legislative decisions to find out what the best uh, regime uh, is for it. Stephen, where, where do we stand? Where does Australia stand here? Well, that is another interesting angle uh, to this story because PNG has borrowed money not only from the IMF but from Australia as well. For Australia, we can't just lend money to any government we want to. Uh, we have uh, our own legislative requirements called the International Monetary Agreements Act we can only lend money to another country in support of a multilateral program. So in this case, we're lending money to PNG on the back of the IMF program. And so we're really telling uh, PNG, uh, well, look, not only if you want the IMF money, do you have to follow its conditions, but if you want our money as well, you have to abide by the IMF conditions. And I think that's, that's very unfortunate uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's sort of ironic because the RBA has a dual mandate relating to inflation and growth. And in fact, our recent review recommended that that dual mandate be strengthened and the government's accepted that recommendation. Um, you know, the, the Labor government's made a big thing out of listening to the Pacific, taking seriously what Pacific governments are saying. Uh, but in this case, it, it, it really seems like, well, we're not listening to PNG. Uh, instead, we're, we're listening to the IMF. The IMF, of course, has form here, doesn't it? It has a history of saying, this is what we want to do, and some of those decisions really not working out well for the countries involved. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been a critic of the IMF over my career, but it has been criticised uh, in the past for taking too much of an ideological approach, too much of a, a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, we heard that criticism uh, very much in relation to the East Asia crisis in the late 90s. And you can see that's what the IMF is doing here. And Stephen, you said this, this has to be decided or agreed to by the end of the year. Is there any prospect of, of wiggle room? Could the government of Papua New Guinea say, look, we, we really don't think this is a good idea, and the IMF say, well, we're still prepared to lend you the money? Or is this a kind of binary thing? There, there have obviously been negotiations between the IMF and, and the government. And this is only one condition of many. So you'd think there should be a wiggle room on it. But we'll see what happens over the next session of Parliament. I think that'll be decisive. All right, Stephen. Well, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention and for joining us again on The Money. Thank you, Richard. Professor Stephen Howes is in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If I ask you what the most important place in the world is, you might say Washington, D.C. You might say Beijing. You might say New York or New Delhi. You might even say Paris or London. You probably wouldn't say Canberra. But they all have something in common. They're cities. And as hugely important as our great areas of food production are, cities are where the action is, where the big decisions are taken, where most of us live now. This vital importance and the problems that cities face, inequality, congestion, climate change, are explored in Age of the City, why our future will be won or lost together. One of the co-authors is Ian Golden, Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford. Ian, it's just this century that cities become home to most of the world's population. We're now at 55% and it's only going to go up. It is astounding how quickly 
the world's population has moved to cities. It's really only in the last century that we've seen this extraordinarily rapid urbanization. Uh, it'll rise to about two thirds of the world's population within the next 20 years or so. And so we are an urban species and all the problems we confront and all the solutions we find will be found, I think, uh, primarily in cities. How big are, are our largest cities now? Because I was in Tokyo in October for the first time, and I, one of the things that blew me away about it was just how massive it is. Cities like Tokyo, uh, 20, 25, growing to 30 million people, and many cities in China and elsewhere, over 20 now and around the emerging world. So very large cities. Of course, a lot depends on how we define cities. It sounds rather technical, but you know what would be defined as a city in England, for example, I'm in Oxford as we speak, which is defined as a city because it has a cathedral and it's only 300,000 people. Uh, it wouldn't be a small village in China. No, indeed. Well, you dealt with that very early in the book and, and allowed us to, more or less as a reader, that we knew a city when we saw one. Exactly. <laughs> the paradox, I suppose, is that despite the number of people living in cities, there seems to be a rise in not, not quite an anti-city sentiment, but certainly an anti-cosmopolitanism that has in turn affected politics. And you're able to kind of draw the line to cities. Yes, I think there is an anti-big city populism growing. I think there are a number of reasons for this. You know, your listeners will recall the books of the early phase of globalization, which talks about the world is flat or the death of distance. But what we found as technological change has accelerated, as integration of the world has increased, is that place has become more important. And so inequality between dynamic cities and left behind places is growing. And of course, the urban elites, and particularly the big cities where politicians live and bankers live and so on, have been the places that have been blamed for many of the problems that uh, ordinary people are encountering. I think this first really became obvious with the financial crisis of 2008-9, where the sense that the people were at the center of the crisis, the bankers, uh, the politicians who had failed to stop it, just got away with it, whereas a lot of people lost their jobs. And that sense of anger about metropolitan elites, I think, has increased subsequently. I think it underpins the anger we saw in Brexit in Britain, a very much an anti-London, anti-Southeast mm. sentiment. And I think it also was very much underpinning support for Trump and him getting into the White House. I don't think either of those things would have happened had it not been for the financial crisis and the sense of disconnect between people cocooned in urban centers and what ordinary people were experiencing. Well, I think you made the point that a banker in New York, and especially back then, but I suspect now even, probably spends more time in London than they do in Baltimore or Detroit. That's right. A very connected global community of professionals in banking, in law, and in other very well-paid services. And I think they do have more in common, in a way, with people that are at a great distance in other metropolitan cities than they do with people in the, their own countrysides. 
I want to get on shortly to kind of what we can do to address some of these concerns, but I think it's first worth exploring how important they are and why we have to improve them because they are the great centres for innovation and the economic engines of any country. Yes, and that's the reason why I, together with Tom Lee Devlin, wrote the book, because we are concerned about the future of cities. They are, in a sense, the geese that lay the golden eggs of our economy. And if we destroy them, everyone will be worse off. The economy will slow down. There'll be less job creation. There'll be less progress. And so the answer is not to undermine dynamic cities, but rather to think about how we can make them more accessible, how more people can get jobs in them, and how we can spread the benefits from these dynamic cities more rapidly and widely across our countries. And of course, the dynamic cities are under threat, not only politically, as we've mentioned, but also from remote work, which is destroying the ecosystem of many central business districts, as people just don't come in, we don't get the footfall in our cities. Through climate change, which many of these dynamic cities are coastal, they're very vulnerable to climate change and climate shocks. And I think increasingly, what we're seeing is that they are vulnerable to pandemics and to the sense that people have that they are dangerous places to be. And so all of these things need to be addressed. And we see in San Francisco today, the sort of dangers if they're not addressed effectively. Yes. In San Francisco, very much teetering on the brink of perhaps not being able to maintain its dynamism and growth because all the energy is being sucked out of it, because of the city really becoming in economically in a very fragile position because um, people aren't going into work there and offices are empty and there's homelessness on the streets, uh, crime is rising, and that makes people feel like they shouldn't be there. And yeah. so that danger is one that I think all dynamic cities face. Well, can we start with um, one of the key issues you've already addressed is inequalities. If we start with inequalities within cities, what can we do to address them, to try to do something about that? Yes, I mean, the two big inequalities we need to address is within cities and between cities and other places. And within cities, it has a lot to do with housing markets, the unaffordability of inner city housing now uh, to ordinary people. That's extremely important. The cost and the effectiveness, how crowded it is, how quickly it operates and so on, of public transport systems matters a lot. Things like schooling, education, health systems, what services are offered in different parts of the city, all of these things contribute to the inequalities within city. But at the heart of them, I think, is this phenomena of increasing cost of living to many people from a lack of affordability of housing. And so that is really at the center of it. How does one build affordable cities? And I think if one addresses that, one will both mean that people outside cities can come into them, but also that people won't be spending such a high share of their income in cities on rent or on uh, debt payments on their properties. Can I ask you about Vienna, Ian? Because although Vienna is not a large city, it has addressed housing in a way that, although I don't think it would be universal, it does offer a sort of pathway or a template that other cities could adopt part of. 
Yes, we talk about Vienna in the book, and we look at the example of it and some other cities, which do seem to have more effectively than others addressed affordability of housing, mainly rental, so much less of a share of private ownership in the city, mainly social supported housing, so very highly regulated. And there's the support goes up to very high levels of income. Typically, when we think of support for rental, it's for low-income people. But what's unusual about Vienna is that the middle classes also get uh, social housing. And it seems to have worked very, very effectively. On The Money Today, my guest is Ian Galton, who's at Oxford. He's co-author of Age of the City, why our future will be won or lost together. And at the moment, we're talking about some of the problems that we're seeing in cities, which are these vital engines of innovation and economics for all of us. And we've been talking about housing. Public transport, Ian, is another thing. This is something that we struggle with here in Australia. What can be done to make it better in more cities? It requires a massive investment. Clearly, we need to move to a zero-carbon public transport system, so electrification as part of that process. So one is, what is the energy source? What is the cost? How congested are the public transport systems? And all of that it requires, I think, very significant investment. It's a rather perverse system in many cities now. Often, poorer people are pushed out of inner-city areas, they're commuting over longer distances, and they're having to pay more. So public transport often increases inequalities in that respect. We need to reverse that. And in the medium term, I think, it's one of the ways that we can encourage people not to use private vehicles as much. And, of course, it begs the question of whether public transport should be free. And those experiments where there is free public transport have proved to be very successful. It's also the case that a lot of public transport systems are sort of a spider web of networks bringing people from suburbs into cities. But what we need is a redesign of the city where we work and play and live in much closer proximity to each other and not having to commute over these great distances. And so the whole idea of a central business district, which is dead at night and weekends and people come using public transport or private transport to it, I think is something that we need to rethink. Can we move to, I suppose, improving the situation between cities and the surrounding areas? Because some of these areas have not prospered in comparison to the cities. That's right. And what's called in the UK the levelling up agenda, but the the tensions between dynamic cities and the hinterlands or the rest of the country, I think are pretty universal. There are very few countries where this hasn't happened. And I think as we move towards a knowledge economy and we see that increasingly where people work isn't going to be determined by natural resources as it was historically, you know, in the UK or in the US, for example, or in Europe, close to mines, close to water, so that you would have power to drive um, engines and so on. Increasingly in a knowledge economy, people can live anywhere. And how they feel about the city, and particularly how young people feel, and whether it offers them the diverse options that they're looking for in life, is going to become more and more important. And not everywhere can do that. So I think we will increasingly be tackling this question about how do we address 
the decline of places where the economic opportunities aren't there anymore or are less likely to be there in the future. And one way of doing it is to say, well, let's suck resources out of our dynamic cities. And another way, I think, is to say, well, we accept that that's going to happen, but people have community, they have a sense of belonging in these places, and they offer many other things. And so what minimum standards can we apply? And I think we need a, a discussion which says, what should everyone in the country be entitled to in their cities? And guarantee those uh, for anywhere over a critical mass in terms of population size. And then create much more flexibility. The pace of technological change is accelerating. And with that, the opportunities and the new jobs are changing very, very rapidly. And the jobs of the future are not in the same places often as the jobs of the past. And that means we need more flexible societies. Instead of people moving more often, they're moving far less frequently. And the main reason is they can't afford to move. And so that is at the heart of the question. How do we create affordable housing in dynamic places? You've pointed out uh, something I really wasn't aware of at all about, which goes to governance and public financing in Germany and, and places like Leipzig. Because Germany, unlike the UK or France, where one city dominates everything, it has a distributed group of cities, Hamburg and Frankfurt and Berlin and Munich are all really important for different reasons. Leipzig hasn't been, but through clever public financing, it's started to really improve and prosper. Yes, Germany is unusual, and so too is Japan, incidentally, in having a much more distributed structure. There's no big city that accounts for a very significant share of the national economy or the population and so on. Of course, part of the reason is not one that we would ever want to reproduce, which is that many of the German cities were bombed in the war. And that sort of flattened the economic structure, but it's also has institutional and other roots to it. And the transport system is, is very, very effective. So Leipzig has been able, by capitalizing on good university, education skills to attract industries in a way that has enabled it not to fall behind and indeed to grow and take advantage of this distributed network of cities in Germany. It's an open question as to how other places will do this. Mm. Um, France has done it with a few key cities, cities like Lyon, for example, that were decaying are now thriving, as well as some cities in the south like Nice and many others. And Spain has also managed, but at the heart of that has been very significant investments in high-speed rail. Yes, I was going and, to say. And, and connectivity, and Germany also has that. I'm sure that part of the reason that you wrote this was that you wanted to make this case more strongly, but how well understood is your central argument, Ian, in, in the places that matter, that cities are our future, whether we like it or not, in fact, and that we have to make them better if we're to tackle things like climate change and inequality? I don't think it is adequately understood. I think there's a real anti-big city sentiment amongst many politicians. And I think it's not appreciated the extent to which we become a very urbanized species, that that will increase. There's nothing I think that's going to reverse that. And that unless we find a solution for cities, we're not going to find the solutions for humanity. 
And that's both a numerical point that we are essentially in cities. And so if we're not solving city problems, we're not solving the problems for humanity. But it's a bigger point because it's the coming together in cities that creates that extraordinary pollination of people that creates the opportunities. It's always been the case that change has been driven out of cities, uh, even when they were a much smaller share of country's population. And that will increasingly become the case. So cities are both the place where we could solve the world's problems or concentrate the world's problems. And that's why it's important, I think, to think through um, how we design cities, our views about cities, uh, and ensure that we make them more livable places, not only for the benefit of Swedish dwellers, but for everyone in our countries. Ian, it's a fascinating book. Thank you very much for joining us today here on The Money. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me uh, on your program. Ian Golden, co-author with Tom Lee Devlin of Age of the City, Why Our Future Will Be Won or Lost Together. And that's it for now. The Money Comes to You from Gadigal Land in Sydney. It's produced by Kate MacDonald. I'm Richard Aidy. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.